The Holy Gospel according to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Well, it is the first Sunday of, in the season of Lent when we, with Jesus, set our gazes toward the cross. We turn from that resplendent brightness of last week's Transfiguration Mount to turn toward the sin-thick darkness of that mount called Golgotha. The season of Lent, of course, began this past Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, when many of us smudged with a cross-shaped smudge of ashes on our foreheads, remembered who we are and who we aren't. We aren't God. We are created by God and breathed into with life that is a gift from God. And we are created of not some otherworldly pixie dust or something, but rather what we are created of is very much this worldly. For what we are created of is the dust, the dirt of creation, which among other things means, and these days this is as important as ever to remember, it means that when we care for creation, as we are called by God to do, we are caring not just for future generations, but also for something of our own future. For one day being not creatures, being creatures, but uh, created by God rather than being God, one day when we die, we shall return to dust, to the earth. Those Ash Wednesday themes of dust and death were not offered by way of being depressing. They were offered by way of observing and remembering that there's no such thing as living a life truly well, unless the foundations upon which you are living are truly true. Which takes us to um, what is going to be kind of a dig-in-deep sort of Bible study sermon as we turn to the first reading from our day. Well-known stuff to many of us since Sunday school days. That first reading comes from the very, very beginning of the Bible and functions, therefore, as the Bible's version of the true foundation upon which its entire story is told, that being the story of the creation of the world, the creation of the universe, the creation of absolutely everything that exists, 
from quarks and leptons to stars and galaxies. The Bible, in the beginning, actually lays that foundation with two different and distinct creation stories, side by side. The first one, found right at the beginning, begins in the beginning and features a creating period, a week of days. The other involves a creating place, a garden, in a place called Eden. A Bible study note about these two creation stories, there are some who seem to think that the deepest truths that can be spoken are to be spoken literally. I literally disagree, for I'm quite sure that the Bible thinks that the deepest truth-telling language, if it's the language of literalism, then the deepest truths we will be able to find ourselves able to speak will be truths which we can only speak of shallowly. To say the same thing another way, God bless science and scientists. Seriously, God bless them and thank God for them. They can teach us much and for what they can teach us, we need to listen to them. I mean, climate change, for example, my gosh, don't listen to politicians, listen to scientists and learn from them. We need the truths they offer us, but that said and absolutely meant the deepest truth-tellers I know are not scientists. The deepest truth-tellers I know rather are poets and prophets and storytellers. Which takes us to the very first stories the Bible does tell us, that being the stories of the creation of absolutely everything there is and where we all know that the first thing the Bible says about the creation of humans is that what it says about two particular humans, their particular names being Adam and Eve, right? Well, actually, reading carefully, maybe not. These two stories, of course, were originally written in Hebrew it's a Hebrew vocabulary lesson. Yes, surely, everybody knows that according to the Bible, the first man was named Adam, pronounced Adam in Hebrew. That word first occurs in Genesis 1, in that first week of creation, on the sixth day, when it says that on the sixth day, God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And so God created humankind in the image of God, male and female. He created them. Wait, you say, I didn't hear any mention of Adam. No, you didn't. That's because we're reading in English, not Hebrew. And in Hebrew, before Adam, Adam, was ever a proper name of a particular man, spelled them with a capital letter, because that's what you do with proper nouns. Before that, in Hebrew, Adam was a not capitalized, not proper noun that simply meant man, as in mankind, as in humankind. Adam means men and women, as it's originally used. Not just two of them, but all of them. Listen again to that account of the sixth day, now that you know that. Then God said, let us make humankind, Adam, in our own image, according to our likeness. And so God created humankind, Adam, in the image of God, 
male and female. He created them, them being Adam. Note to self, and to literalists too, the first time the Bible uses the word Adam in Scripture, it is not in reference to a particular man named Adam, but to all people, men and women, who together are Adam kind, humankind. Second note to self and note to literalists too, this story, this deep, deep, deep truth-telling story from the beginning was not understood to be the story of a particular person, but all people, including in particular, wait for it. The story is also meant to be a story, albeit metaphorically, about you personally and in particular. The main point here being that the reason everything exists, the reason you exist, is the same reason as everything exists, the reason is God. And how exactly did everything and you come to exist? People, remember, scientists, they're all over it. Listen to them. But why did everything come to exist? People, remember, Genesis. Everything exists because God. That is to say, no matter how exactly scientists teach us that it happened, there's no such thing as a cosmic coincidence. All that exists, exists purposefully, and the purposer is God. Well, so the Bible says, anyway. The next place the word Adam is found is in Scripture in our first reading for today, the very first verse of it in Genesis 2, 7, which is now, we're now in that second of the two creation stories. We're not in the six, seven days, we're in the garden, right? This, this takes place in that garden paradise kind of a place, in a place called Eden, in which, according to Genesis 2, verse 7, God created an Adam. Still not, in this case, a particular person, in Genesis 2, God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. What do you know? We didn't just make that Ash Wednesday stuff up. God, says Genesis 2, formed Adam from the dust of the ground, and then God breathed into the Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and the Adam became a living being. Interesting thing here is to note that here in Genesis 2, unlike Genesis 1, it does turn out that the Adam whom God creates now is no longer male and female. Right now, here in Genesis 2, it's only male, with the female to come later, which serves as another reminder that if you insist on taking powerful stories like Genesis 1 and 2 historically and scientifically literally, then you end up literally with some very conflicted historians and scientists. Here's another Hebrew vocabulary thing. The Adam, created here in Genesis 2, is created from the ground, the Hebrew word for which is Adam Ah. Which means that in Hebrew, there's just this wonderful play on words going on as out of the Adamah, God creates an Adam. For that play on words to carry into English, I knew a scholar, a Jewish scholar, who preferred to translate this verse this way. Out of the dirt, God created a dirtling. <laughs> then God told the Adam, 
the dirtling, to take care of the garden, to take care of the dirt and what it produced. But God also said to the Adam, you may eat of the fruit of all the trees in the garden except for one. Don't, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat of it and you will die. By the way, the Eve, the woman, she's not named Eve for a while. The woman isn't even here yet. This is Adam's commandment. Next, we're told, life in this paradise created for this Adam, this unnamed dirtling, isn't fully yet the paradise it could be because the dirtling, it turns out, is dying of loneliness. And so many of you know what comes next in the story. Of the dirtling breathed to life's rib, God creates another. This one not being a man, but a woman. Man and woman are related words. It's also true in Hebrew, ish and isha, man and woman. And the joy of life in this place where life is the life that is by God meant to be is now also deepened as the Adam experiences not only now joy in God's love, but also the joy of another's love. Another who, not literally, but nevertheless powerfully, is somehow so of him that she completes him, fills something missing within him, something close, so close to the deep heart of him that I don't know, maybe she's not described primitively, but actually maybe perfectly when she's described metaphorically as from a rib, from right next to his heart. At which point the man and the woman, still not with a capital letter, particular or proper name, it's the man and the woman, are for all of us to see the humans that humans are meant to be as they love and trust and obey and walk with and talk with God, and as they too love each other and know each other and experience each other as gifts from God, and too, as they, as they were told to, as they were created to, they love and respect and care for the garden. Their creator God had created and entrusted to them. Whoa, do you realize? At this point in the story, we've just heard the Bible's big picture answer to the question that surely all of us want to know uh, the answer to, and that being, what on earth are we here for? Genesis 1 and 2 is answered. Three things. A loving and obedient and trusting relationship with God. A loving and caring relationship with others whom God has given us to love. And a loving and caregiving relationship with God's garden, the earth. Big picture point, the Garden of Eden is what created life looks like when all three of those relationships with God, with others, with the earth, are well and cared for. Which in Genesis they are until entering this paradise of God is a voice which is not God's, but rather of all things, a talking serpent. Again, literalism is probably not terribly helpful, but a snake, as imagery here, is actually quite helpful for the one now speaking in God's creation, speaks seeking to secrete a venomous 
poison into creation. Now, just as many from the very beginning want to identify the man and the woman as a particular man and woman, Adam and Eve, rather than prototypically or metaphorically representing all men and women, so too many want from the very beginning to identify the serpent as Satan, which could be true. It's just we need to be clear it doesn't say that here. Indeed, just as a particular man named Adam and a particular woman named Eve will not be named by name until a little later in Genesis, a particular tempter named Satan will not actually be named by name until we get clear to the book of First Chronicles. Luther, in the small catechism, observes that the voice of temptation can actually come from us, from, at us from all different directions. One of them being, he said, surely the devil, Satan, Another, though, being others in the world, we all know how this goes, you. Hmm? But another being nothing more and nothing less than the darkest side of our very own selves. As in, well, I don't know about you, but I know about me. I don't, I've had plenty of times I don't need anybody's help at all to turn from the desires of God. I have done that plenty of times in my life, just absolutely all by myself. Nobody needed to help me whatsoever. In the Bible story, the tempting voice begins to drip drops of poison into God's garden by oh so benign soundingly suggesting, just hinting that, you know what? You are meant for something greater than this. Greater, as in not dependence on God, but freedom from God. Not obedience to God, but likeness to God. And by likeness, I don't mean man being, being created in God's image, but by likeness to God, I mean who needs God? You can be your own God, the serpent coos. All you need is that one thing that for some reason, I mean, what's up with this? All you need is that one thing that for some reason God is trying to keep from you. The knowledge, the full knowledge of all that is good and all that is evil. Oh my, wouldn't that be tasty. Here, have some fruit. And the woman bit. And the man bit too. And paradise was lost. Because why? Because they ate an apple? No, paradise is lost because they decided to be free like God and free of God by becoming their own gods, only then to discover something that the tempter hadn't told them. And that is that being free of God and fully aware of the full knowledge of the fullness of evil is not a prescription for life but for death. For you and for others and for God's garden. In our gospel reading for today, Jesus is the one who heard the tempter telling him not to be who God said he was, what was, but to be what he could ever so greater be if he would just listen to him instead. Jesus didn't bite. He rather, in not quite so many words, but more or less, told the tempter to go to hell. He then in accordance to the will of his father, set out on his path, which would take him to that cross and to death and to hell and back. 
Because why? Because he didn't come to earth to wish you well in your battle with all that is not of God but of evil. He came to be your victory over all that is not of God but of evil. Because it turns out there's one more thing the tempter didn't tell you. And the reason he didn't is actually because he didn't know. And that is that more powerful than his ability to turn you from God to sin is the power of God's love for sinners. So, so it's Lent. Fight the fight against sin, for in the power of the Spirit there are battles that can be won, and that is good. Of course, life being life, and the tempter being tempt the tempter, and you and I being Adam. The truth is there will also be skirmishes and battles that we lose. That's the truth of the human, the Adam condition. Just remember more than just that truth. Remember the gospel truth. Some battles may be lost, but in Christ, the war is already won. And what it is won by is something the tempter has absolutely no weapon against. For what the war is won by now and in the end is the forgiveness of sin, including Adam, the forgiveness of the sin that is your sin. Ha! Bite that, Satan. Amen.